Today I'm reading from Luke chapter 8, 22 through 39, and I'm reading from the NIV. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake. The boat was being swamped, and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided, and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. They sailed to the region of Gerasenes across the lake from the Galilee. When Jesus stopped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man in the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand to foot and kept under guard, he had broken the chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him, and they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into them, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending to the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this to the town in the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and he left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord. As we begin today, I want to help each of us establish our baseline for this passage. And I want to do that by asking you this question. What is your take on miracles? Are you the kind that spends more time asking God to do something miraculous or explaining away why God probably won't do something miraculous? Should everyone experience them? Should no one expect them? Where are you in that? Well, we get to explore that a little bit today when we look at Jesus as a miracle worker. And we're, of course, not without plenty of choice In the New Testament, nearly every page in every gospel has a miracle on it. You cannot separate the historic Jesus from his miracles. They are intrinsically bound up in his character. And yet, going back as far as such 
Well-known skeptics is the disciple Thomas. <laughs> People have always been looking and saying, well, maybe, maybe not. Or perhaps the strength of our faith or the weakness of it is best summarized by the father of the demoniac son, who when Jesus said, I can heal him if you have faith, just simply cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. Maybe you have a spiritual schizophrenia like I do. We get to look at Jesus as a miracle worker today, and it's important that we embrace this reality. Because if you're embarrassed about that part of Jesus, if you, like so many, attempt to explain away, if you're always looking for the natural explanation of the miracle, what you basically do is take apart Christianity. What you're left with is a benign spiritual leader who couldn't possibly have influenced the world by starting a revolution in the way that Christianity has done. Jesus was far more than just a wise teacher. It was the miracles that made Jesus who he was, and therefore Christianity what it has become. You can't separate them. In fact, I would say everything that's important in Christianity, everything that sets it apart, is miraculous. Most other world religions, you could take away their stories of the miraculous. They're anecdotal. You could take them away and the religion would stand. If you take away the miraculous from the story of Jesus, you really have nothing left. It's rooted in the miraculous. By the way, I want to just say, I thought Lou did a wonderful job last week looking at Jesus the teacher. It was an excellent sermon. We're doing a flyover of the life of Jesus, and we want to devote most of our time as he sets his sight towards Jerusalem, towards the Passion. We'll dig into that, but right now we're in a series of four overviews of different aspects of the ministry years. So today we're going to look at uh, the miracles of Jesus. What I've chosen to do is zero in on four miracles that Luke describes in the eighth chapter. I invite you to turn there with me. Luke intentionally strings together four miracles. Anna read two of those. By the time we're done, we'll finish the passage. And he does it intentionally. They're meant to be one episode, four scenes. He invites us to put them together, to build on one another, miracle on miracle, and come to a conclusion. In essence, what this episode creates for us is a checklist about Jesus. He's inviting us to make conclusions, not so much about miracles, but about the miracle man. In scene one, we're with the disciples and Jesus in a boat in a storm-tossed sea. Luke is a master storyteller. As he writes, you're just drawn in. Rembrandt, how many have ever seen Rembrandt's painting of Jesus calming the storm? Okay, so all three of us who are well-educated here, um, if you look at it, there are actually 14 people in the boat, 12 disciples, Jesus, and then Rembrandt, it's thought, paints himself into the boat, right next to Jesus, looking directly out at the observer of the scene. We're in the boat. We picture the storm-tossed sea, very common on the Sea of Galilee for these storms to come up. And we're supposed to understand that it was a great storm. Even the fishermen 
who spent their lives on the sea were afraid. And they're the ones that cry out, Master, we're going to drown. So you know this is big. You can picture the sails being torn to shreds, the sea coming into the boat. But yet we see Jesus asleep in the boat. Very different picture. We see fear and turmoil in the midst of this circumstance, which is quite human, isn't it? (laughs) It's quite normal for that. But yet we see Jesus in perfect peace, sleeping in the stern of the boat, and they wake him, and they say, Lord, don't you care that we die? Don't you care that we perish? Jesus shakes off his sleepies, turns to the wind and waves like two unruly children, and says, shh. Actually, in the Greek, it's just two words. Peace, silence. Just like I used to do at night with the girls who shared a bedroom. Peace, be still. My dad used to sneak up on my brother and me, and um, he would come with his belt unbuckled. The problem was we always heard him coming because his ankles cracked up the stairs. Peace, be still. Like a parent scolded nature, and it was calm. And then we see this remarkable Response. Look at it in verse uh, 25. Well, let's, let's back up to the beginning of the paragraph, middle of 24. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another. Now, actually, it says then in fear and amazement. So in other words, the real fear in the story occurs after the miracle. It wasn't the storm that really was terrifying to them. It was the thought of the man who was in the boat with them who had calmed the storm. Because it was with fear and amazement they said to one another, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? And with that statement, Luke introduces the primary question of this episode in the life of Jesus. He invites us along with the disciples to answer that question. And we also see two recurring themes that occur throughout all four scenes. And that is the statement about faith, our need for faith, God's response to faith, and the reality of fear in our lives. They eventually get to the opposite side to a Gentile region Just the fact that we're talking about pigs lets you know that we're nowhere in Judah, in Israel. And there we find scene two. What's revealed in scene one is that Jesus has power over nature. Who is this man that even wind and waves obey him? In scene two, what we're going to learn is that Jesus has power over demons. And what that means is that he is not only master of the natural world, he's master of the supernatural world. We see a Gentile demoniac completely owned by the demons that possess him. It's obviously an extreme case because when Jesus asks, what's your name? The demon says, we are legion, for we are many. The Roman legion was 6,000 soldiers. Now that might be an exaggeration, It might be the demons talking trash, but we know there are a lot of them, and they had complete control of this man. And several times, three times, they begged Jesus 
for permission not to go into the abyss, but instead to go into the flock of pigs. Now, this is interesting. Let me just pause for a minute and answer the question, why the pigs? Why do that? Why not just say no? Why the pigs? I don't really know for sure, but I do know something that we benefit from because of the pigs. What we know for sure is that this was a true spiritual conflict. Based on this story, remember Luke is a historian. He's recording all of this as historical fact. What we know for sure is that demons are real. What you can't do is turn this into Jesus the psychoanalyst. (laughs) And then we see two responses in the story. There are the villagers who it says were afraid. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And what was their response when they saw it? Relief? No. They were terrified because someone had authority over a realm that they could not control. That was to be feared. And when they saw someone that had greater power over that which they feared the most, they feared that person even more. Their response isn't stay. Their response is leave. And then we see the man who is healed and delivered. His response is to go and tell everybody what Jesus did. Obviously, he became a sold-out follower because of the miracle that had occurred in his life. See, the miraculous can't be denied by those who experience it. They have a faith when others fear. And the difference between the two is belief, isn't it? So again, we see the same theme of fear and faith. So in the first scene, we saw that Jesus had authority over nature itself. In the second scene, we see that Jesus has authority over the supernatural world, the same. In the third scene, what we see is what we're most used to, and that is Jesus having authority over our infirmities, over our physical health and well-being. We're going to pick up the story at verse 40, where we see two very needy and desperate people. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. And then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. And then Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. And when he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. 
Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. (laughs) They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, and again, in Aramaic, these are two words, child, rise. It's amazing how simple Jesus made the miraculous. He took her by the hand and said, child, rise. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. So here are the final two scenes that kind of blend into one. Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house, but Jairus will have to wait because along the way, in this crowd, a woman that the text says had an issue of bleeding Don't know exactly what that means, but it had continued for 12 years, and no physician of the day, no prayer, no effort could heal it. So she was incurable, and worse, because it was a blood issue, she was ceremonially unclean, which meant she was completely excluded from the spiritual life of her community. Devastating, not just a physical desperation, but a spiritual one as well. To her, God seemed very far away. The temple, a place she could never enter into outside of her reach. But then the God-man who came and in the same way as we saw in the Old Testament, kicked the dust up with Jacob, kicked the dust up in her town, the crowd gathering, and she thinks if I can just touch his garment, perhaps I can be healed. And she touches him and she's healed instantly. Jesus knows that power is removed from him, turns and says, who touched me? Now, I believe this is theater. I believe Jesus is intentionally pausing so that everyone around can witness the miracle. I believe it was important to Jesus that the crowd recognize that Jesus had authority over illness, over infirmity. And then he says to her, do not be afraid. Your faith has saved you. And by the time it's done, the servants from Jairus' home come to him and say, it's too late. The girl is gone. Doesn't this ring similar to another raising of the dead when Jesus lingered rather than going immediately? Yeah, Lazarus. He paused, and in fact, he waited until Lazarus was dead to go. And the disciples were astonished at that. Why doesn't he rush to his side? The sisters begged him, if only you would come when we called you. They were hurt. They were bothered, distraught. They loved Jesus, but they didn't understand. I believe in that language there's some anger, some betrayal as they fall at his feet and express their hurt that he didn't come. And, and Jesus, when he's queried, responds that uh, I'm doing this so a greater glory, a greater glory can be achieved. You see a bit of that pause here. And maybe the lingering to speak to the woman was part of that theater as well. The servants come and they say it's too late and Jesus presses towards the home anyway. He's going for the big one. He comes in and he says the child's merely sleeping. Now, the, the witnesses knew that she was dead, it says. 
So what you would be mistaken to do is to believe that Jesus is in some way dismissing what has happened. He's actually speaking with faith. Don't forget that in the ancient language, sleep and death were synonymous. It was somewhat of a play on words. You see, the Sadducees, the theological liberals of Jesus' day, believed that death was the end. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. They were the theological conservatives, and they called death sleep. And so Jesus is simply saying, there's more to come. There is life beyond the grave. The child has not ended her existence She only sleeps. In the same way the Pharisees believed, we sleep before the resurrection. But that's not how they took it. They laughed at him because they had seen her die. They verified that she was dead. Jesus puts them out of the room, pushes them away, goes in with just his inner circle, the parents, and simply says, child, rise. And what we see in that is the fourth point on the checklist. Jesus not only had authority over nature, he not only had authority over the supernatural and spiritual world, he not only had authority over all physical ailment, he had authority over death itself. See, Luke is inviting us into this series of miracles to lead us to the inescapable conclusion to the question that is asked at the beginning when the disciples look at the one who had just calmed the storm like he silenced a naughty child and said, who is this man? And the conclusion actually is professed by none other than the demons who said, what do you want of me, Jesus, son of the most high God? You see, Even the demons understood who he was. They answer exactly the question that Luke wants us to be asking. He wants us to land at that very same place, but not as the demons who are in eternal judgment, but as those whose lives can be redeemed by that truth of who Jesus is. So let's just quickly go down and now look at what the miracles of Jesus reveal. And I just want to quickly bullet five things. The first thing that we see, not just by these four, but throughout all of the Gospels in every miracle. They reveal his identity. Who is this man? He is Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. Put your finger in Luke 8 because we're going to come back. But go to John chapter 20. At the end of John's Gospel, and he's presented a very clear case for the person of Jesus based on seven I am statements and then seven miraculous signs, all to lead to this uh, verse, verse 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So Jesus and the miraculous They were evidence of who he claimed to be, his identity. The second thing we see is that the miracles of Jesus reveal God's kingdom. Now, that's not quite explicit in Luke chapter 8, but when you take the miracles as a whole and put them against what we learned last week about Jesus' primary teaching 
on the gospel of the kingdom, what you see very clearly is that the kingdom of God in Christ as the one who reigned, who came as the ruler, that he was exercising that authority. How many of you remember when we were looking at Daniel in the lion's den and we talked a little bit about the nature of miracles throughout the whole of the Bible? How many remember that? I'm glad it was so life-transforming for all of you. (laughs) One of the things that we pointed out was that we see miracles as unnatural, breaking into what is normal. When you see miracles from the context of the whole story of Scripture, miracles are actually normal, (laughs) breaking into the abnormal. Right now, we look at all of creation, and it declares the glory of God, but it's marred. It's like a beautiful stained glass window that's that's spent its whole life next to a factory, and soot has built up on the outside of the stained glass, and we can't see its beauty. Miracles are a way of God just taking a little spiritual windex and wiping a little strip away so that we can see the beauty the true beauty of creation underneath what has been marred and ruined because of sin. Miracles give us a glimpse of how God intended life to be and how he intends it someday to be again. Furthermore, it's the kingdom now, as we learned last week, there is a reality to Jesus' reign. His kingdom has come, but yet it hasn't fully come. That miracles occur in our life is evidence that Jesus does reign. He does exert his authority in our lives. But all are not healed. Miracles do not come to all of us. They didn't even come to everyone who was around Jesus. We see the miraculous. Some of us experience the miraculous. The kingdom is here, but yet someday that will be the state of affairs for all of us when the kingdom fully comes. Let me back that up by going to Jesus' statements to John the Baptist, as Lou mentioned last week, when John uh, says to him, are you really the Christ? Because what I'm seeing right now isn't exactly what I pictured. In Luke 7, he says, go back and tell John what you see. And he talks about the lame walking, the blind seeing, the poor receiving the good news of the gospel. What he's quoting is Isaiah 6, the same passage that he quoted in the synagogue when he began his ministry and said, the kingdom of God has come. This has been fulfilled today in your midst. So Jesus' miracles were the validation that, in fact, the kingdom had come and to help us understand and get a glimpse of what the kingdom someday will be when it has fully come. Third thing about miracles is that they validate Jesus' message and mission. Towards the end of his life, when we look at his opponents, you're going to see them ask over and over again, give us a sign, prove that you are who you are. And one of the things Jesus basically says is, giving you lots of signs. <laughs> You've been missing them. And I'm going to give you one ultimate sign. But the clear indication there was that all the signs were meant to be a validation of who he was, what his message was, and what his mission was, what he had come to do. The fourth thing that we see that comes out of the Luke 8 quadrifecta of miracles. Is that such a word? It is now. A fourth thing that we see that comes out of that is that 
When Jesus performed miracles, they required, it was necessary to respond. You couldn't sit neutral. You heard Jesus speak, you could do like a lot of people do on Sunday morning. Ah, take it or leave it. (laughs) But when Jesus performed a miracle, you had to decide what you thought about that. And what we see in Luke 8 is two options. Fear, which is the result of unbelief and doubt. And faith, which is belief and commitment and is the place where miracles proliferate in our lives. And then finally, what we see in this particular passage, Luke chapter 8, reveals our desperation as a race. One of the things you see in each of these accounts is the utter desperation of these people on a boat that they're helpless to keep from going under in the middle of the sea. A man completely controlled by spiritual forces, no control himself. A woman who has reached her end, she's hopelessly incurable and apart from God. And a father and a mother who have just lost their child, desperate and in sorrow and in pain. We all live in that. We are desperate at times in the circumstances of our life. There are times we are desperate spiritually. No matter what we try to do to do the right thing, we seem to be always losing, and we just feel like the world and the forces have just worked constantly against us to keep us from following Christ, and on our own, we're powerless to do the right thing. Yes, we face illnesses. We face limitations. And yes, we have that ultimate fear, that sense that no matter how hard we try, no matter how good the doctors get, no matter how far out we can extend our life expectancy, in the end, we all lose that final battle. And the grave is the ultimate thing to be feared. You see, it's beautiful because these are exactly the circumstances into which God invades our life, brings himself, incarnates, and brings transformation. So where does that leave us today? How do we respond to this? And let me get back to the initial question I asked. Do miracles happen today? Does God still do the miraculous? And obviously, that's a very involved teaching. But let me just make several observations. First, I don't see anything in Scripture that says God cannot and does not do the miraculous today. And many of us have witnessed miracles. I personally have witnessed miracles. I believe God does miracles. Why don't we see more happening? Well, there probably are some theological reasons we could point out, but I want to suggest that maybe God wants to do far more for us to live in the miraculous, but the problem is we're not desperate enough. We're too self-dependent. We ask God for things, but then accept what only our abilities can accomplish. Give only what is reasonable to our budget. Trust God for only what really we can trust ourselves to do. And so because of that, God never does exceedingly abundantly beyond what we could ask or imagine because we don't let him. We're not desperate enough. We don't see our utter need for him in our lives to break through supernaturally for us to experience the life he's called for us. And then the other thing I want to encourage you to think about is that maybe, maybe our life is far more miraculous than we think. 
Maybe we just haven't trained our eyes to see the miraculous. Jesus did say to his disciples, you're gonna do even greater things than me. And as we see going forward, we do see a repetition of the miraculous events that were similar to Jesus' life, but they're similar. They're not greater. What did Jesus mean when he talked about a miraculous work that we would do as his followers that is greater than what he was doing on earth? It's the greatest miracle of all. It's the miracle of changed lives. It's the miracle of grace. It's the miracle of being reconciled to God because of what Christ ultimately did on the cross. You see, the greater thing that the miracles on earth only pointed to, by comparison to which they were firecrackers to Hiroshima, the great miracle of all is that we can be made right with God and that we are incapable of it completely, except that Christ came, the great miracle of incarnation, the great miracle of the cross, the great miracle of grace. You see, huh, we live in the miraculous. And because of that, just in the same way, those that follow Jesus were amazed by everything they saw. We need to stand in these stories, but ultimately at the foot of the cross, and be amazed. We're gonna end by ministering to you through the bread and the cup, which commemorate the greatest miracle of all, God dying for man and the life, the miracle of life that's ours in him. And then also, if you wish, we have people who are prepared to pray for you. You could certainly linger and allow them to pray for needs in your life. Expect God to do the miraculous as we come and commemorate his work on the cross. Father, thank you for this greatest miracle of all, Life, life from death, that sin no longer has power over us, that the law of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death for this greatest miracle of all, redemption, reconciliation, we thank you. Father, help us to live in an expectancy. Help us to be desperate for you. Father, as much as you've done in our midst, please do more, surprise us. Help us to lean into faith, not into fear in our lives. Dismiss us with your blessing, and in your grace, in Jesus' name, amen.